As Dave said, it's good to see everybody here this morning. And uh, last Sunday, I noticed we had a great many visitors, for which I praise the Lord. For you who are here this morning, we trust you will be blessed as we worship together. Uh, the special flowers behind me this morning have special meaning to us, and they were given by Ella Rowland in memory of Steve Rowland. And I just wanted to mention that our dear brother in the Lord, who went home to be with the Lord quite a while ago now, uh, at least I should say nearly a year ago. But uh, we just praise God for the ministry that he left and the, the faith that he had, and which was, uh, as all of you know who knew him well, was so wonderfully used by God as he was chaplain of Franklin General Hospital and served the Lord the last 10 years of his life from his retirement till he was 75. And then the Lord took him home quickly. So we praise the Lord. Ella just wanted a little remembrance in this church that she loved so much and that where Steve served so well. This morning I would like to uh, talk to you a little further about uh, some of the things I've been discussing with you over these past weeks, especially in reference to uh, Satan and uh, to the deception that he uh, places upon men and their hearts and causes them to have wrong ideas about himself. This is a, a very, very big thing. He deceives about death. He deceives about glory. He deceives about so many things. And if you read your papers, you, you find that uh, there's much going on right in our own country that indicates his deceptions are becoming greater and greater in the church as an organization and also in the very worship of Satan. For the, one of the fastest growing cults right now is the Satan cult. It has grown tremendously in the last few years. It's out started in California. One man has about 10,000 worshipers who are with him. And uh, Satanism is a, a terrible thing. It, pl it plays upon the flesh. And uh, I'm reading here from an article on it, which was in one of the papers. Uh, it just says that uh, uh, it's an escape into power by the powerless and the small, people who feel need for a big brother. It's hard to relate to God. This is what they say. Satan is more immediate symbol, and Satan represents the earthy, the carnal, the materialistic delights right where we live. So it is growing. They have a black mass those who are part of the Roman church and have now embraced Satanism. And then they have, of course, Satan services in the Protestant group. And it probably, in the last two years, has multiplied 500 times. So these are some of the things that are uh, evident to us as we read the newspapers today. Then, of course, in the church itself, we find things going on that really, if we read it and understand it, we'll know that Satan is definitely at work. 
For instance, this is the Council of Churches. Norman Tease is speaking. Let us admit, he says, that the creed, the ancient creed, the Westminster Creed, is out of step with the modern world. And he says that the creed, the Westminster Confession, is no longer a bastion of faith in the church. For beloved, the creed is still a great bastion of faith in the church. But the sectarian groups that oppose it, they are the ones that are diametrically against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another man in the Council of Churches says the church does not seek to change the community. It accepts the community as it is. The believer and the unbeliever must come together to improve the community. In other words, it has nothing to do with the born-again experience and us being the light bearers in the community where we are. And so Satan is, as God says in 2 Corinthians, is garbed like an angel of light. In other words, in the very pulpits of the land, there are those who, without even realizing it, are proclaiming satanic doctrines, the doctrines that God has very clearly put down to us as, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. It's not to join in with the community. It's to show the community that there is a new life in Jesus Christ and that we are new creatures in Jesus Christ. And uh, all of these things, it, it, uh, as I cut them out, it just amazes me. You know, like I read here, the Conference of the United Methodist Church has a workshop out at uh, Camp Quinnipet on Shelter Island a workshop in the new sexual lifestyles for men and women. Well, you know, uh, this sounds very good, but, beloved, uh, it really is taking sex out of God's hands completely and putting it in man's hands. And some of the things, if you have read them, put out by the churches concerning sex today would really crush our lives completely if we were to follow them. So without people even realizing it, Satan is working in a very definite way in the churches, in the world that's around us, in the minds of rulers. Wherever we look, we would find Satan working. Now, as I said last week, and I think it's very, very, very important, and that is that uh, we're to remember that Satan is a person, all right? If there's no Satan, there is no Christ. For if there's no Satan, Jesus becomes a colossal liar. When he talks of his temptation in the wilderness by Satan, If there's no Satan, you have no explanation for sin in the world. For God is not the author of sin. 
Concerning sin, it says, let no man say he is tempted of God. In other words, that God would tempt us with sin. We are tested by God. We are not tempted by God. God is not the author of sin. So we're to be very, very careful that we don't make that terrible mistake of somehow relegating Satan exactly where Satan wants us to relegate him to some imaginative thing. We cast aside then the great war that is going on in this universe for the souls of men. For Jesus is very clear when he's on the earth and he looks out at a dying world and he says, the whole world lieth in darkness even unto this hour. And he looks at all mankind and he says, you are of your father, the devil, whose works ye do. Sin came into the world through Satan. It is a great mystery. All we know is that this creature was created by God and in his early creation was the regent ruler of all that God made, of all of God's creation. Lucifer, the star of the morning, he was second in position to God. High, dignified calling. God called him the cherub that covereth the throne. He was the protector for God, for the Trinity, for the Father, for the Son, for the Holy Ghost. The angelic creation all brought their worship to Lucifer to bring to God. And then into his mind in Isaiah 14 came the thought, I will exalt my throne above God. The sin of Satan is called pride, jealousy. Who could Satan be jealous of? He could be jealous of no creature. He was above all creatures of the earth. There was only one that stood above him, and that was God himself. And therefore, his pride and his jealousy involved God. That was the only step he could take. It was the only place he could go above. And so it came into his heart that he should exalt himself in Isaiah 14 and make himself above the throne of God, and it says, and be like God. And so this was the very beginnings, you see, of sin coming into this world. This is in antiquity past. We don't know the time. We have no idea of this. All we know is it happened back there. 1 John 3, 8 says this, He that committeth sin is of the devil. Would you remember that? In other words, any sin that is in your life is of the devil. Remember that. This is the word of God. He that committeth sin is of the devil. Then notice what it says. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. You see? You don't know where this beginning was. But the devil sinneth from the beginning. You see? 
and sin came into this world that we live in through Satan, our adversary, the one who opposes us at every turn, the one who deceives. As I said last week, you tell me you believe in God whom you cannot see, you say you believe in Jesus whom you cannot see, then why should we say that we do not believe in Satan whom we do not see? If Jesus says he exists and he is the one that inspires especially war against the church of Jesus Christ. Now, as I said last week, it's a vast panoramic view of the great and general conflict from ages past the conflict with God in Isaiah 14 where he tried to tell God that he would take the throne from him and God says, I'll cast you out and send you down into the sides of the pit. His secondly, his great conflict then with Adam because here he had been given the regency over the earth, over this world that we live in and suddenly after his battle with God himself and his casting out from heaven, now he sees Adam come in, God with a brand new plan, placing Adam upon earth, and immediately his jealousy is with Adam, for God then speaks to Adam and says to Adam, Adam, the world, the earth is under your dominion. Then he takes the animals and brings them to Adam and says, Adam, you name the animals. You do this, Adam. You do this. And all the time, Satan is watching and waiting for his opportunity, his chance to come in and to cause confusion in this new plan that God has manifest for this world we live in. Now, beloved, many ways, Last week, I spoke in a general sense of the whole panoramic view of Satan and God, the great warfare, the great conflict that existed. But this morning, I'd like to just, if I can, pinpoint a few of these. His second conflict was with Adam. His third great conflict was with Christ. For Christ is promised everything. He's to become the inheritor of the earth. And this was that which was in the beginning given to Satan, that Satan might keep it for God. How do we know that? Very simple, and I'm just going to go through this very quickly. Turn over to Luke, Luke the fourth chapter. In Matthew 4 and Luke 4, incidentally, are the two records of Christ's temptation. You can always remember it, Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Matthew records the birth of Christ. Luke records the birth of Christ. The other two gospels don't. But Matthew 4 and Luke 4 record the temptation of Jesus. Now notice what he says. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, 
and this is part I'd like you to notice, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Amazing, isn't it? In a moment of time, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them. For that is delivered unto me. Notice that. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. Now you understand a little why Jesus was called, why Jesus called Satan the God of this world and the prince of this world. There is here a sense of truth and also a lie, you see. Remember, Satan is called the great liar. God says he was a liar from the beginning. And he lied to Eve. He has lied and lied and lied. And in this portion, there is a sense of the truth. He was given this great dominion in the beginning. But there is also a lie. Because the kingdoms of the world, while it's true this world is lying in darkness even unto this hour, they are yet to be the kingdoms of Christ. He knows the word of God. But he sought if he could seek Jesus, the Son of God, to worship him. He felt again that he could have that victory over God and that he could exalt his throne above God and say, I can bring even your own divine Son into the dominion of myself because I would give him the kingdoms of this world and my throne would be exalted above your throne. But isn't it amazing here that God says, Jesus says, and Satan speaks of the fact that the world was placed in his hands. And Jesus here is being tempted of this one that the whole world had been under the dominion of and is asked to worship him. And I will give you the kingdoms, notice that. All this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, ah, that's it, satanic worship, all shall be thine. Imagine what a lie this was, eh? Portion of truth, you see, but a lie. He had no power to give it. It's still God's. It's true Satan is running amok in this world. We can see it in the nations. We see it all around us. But it is still permissive only by the will of God. It is still in God's plan that one day his precious son and our Savior Jesus Christ shall be the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the only high potentate over all the earth. It's coming. It's coming, beloved. But here, he has a portion of truth in that God did give it to him in the beginning. And a lie that is very deep that he still had the power, though God had cast him out to give all the worlds and all the kingdoms to Jesus, and he could have it. As long as Jesus would worship, imagine, the arrogance of this one who is our adversary. Remember that the word of God says, your adversary, the devil, 
goes about like a roaring lion devouring whomever he will. And so in this temptation, we see that Jesus deals personally with someone who speaks to him, and Jesus speaks back to him. Now, for anybody to deny that Satan exists will have to then also contend that the Gospels are a lie and that the personality of Satan does not exist. But here, God makes it clear it does exist. Now, just a few things to pinpoint this morning because there are a few instances where Satan sought to conquer God as foolish as that may sound to us, may I say, and it can sound very foolish to us, and take over the government of all of his original domain. We started in Genesis last week, in Genesis 3.15, where we're told, and when God speaks to Satan and says, I will put enmity between thy seed and the woman's seed, and thou shalt bruise his heel, Christ's heel, but he shall crush thy head. This was in the very beginning. The gauntlet was thrown down with Satan, with the serpent. And as I said, the serpent is nakash in Hebrew, which means the same thing, the shining one of God, the serpent. He isn't given the name Satan or the devil until a later time. But here he was the beautiful one who deceived Eve. Now, there are several other instances, if I might say, and God always has one answer for Satan. And this, to me, thrills my heart. Just quickly, down, if we would remember that Satan is the author of sin, that God says in 1 John 3, 8, whosoever sinneth is of the devil, therefore all sin is because of the devil. I'm glad it's because of the devil. I could never imagine God causing me to sin. If there are not two spiritual powers in the universe, then I don't understand sin. If there were only one spiritual power in this universe, and that power was God, then we need have no conflict with sin. But there are two spiritual powers in this universe, and Satan is the author of sin. Now, if this be so, then in the crisis points in man's history, you can be sure Satan was at work and God always had an answer. And the answer was always the same. This is the thrill that thrills my heart. And that if we begin in the very beginning, first we begin with Genesis 3.15, and then if we go to the first children who are born, Cain and Abel. And Abel was to be the child through whom this seed should come. And Satan, who is the author of sin, inspires the heart of Cain. Imagine the first two children to be a murderer one of the deepest of sins that we consider, that a man should kill another man. And he gets into his heart. They both bring to God a sacrifice, 
and Cain brings the product of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brings the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof, and God says, I have a respect to Abel's offering, but to Cain's offering I have no respect. And Cain, it says, was wroth with his brother. And God said to Cain, why are you wroth with your brother? If you do the same thing as your brother, I will receive you just the same. But Satan is at work, and Satan slays his brother Abel, who brought the blood sacrifice that indicated that he knew he was a sinner and that someone had to die for sin. And you can know full well that Adam and Eve, his mother and father, spoke to Cain and Abel and told them there is a way to approach God. When we fell in sin, we did not know, and we clothed ourselves with fig leaves. And when God come and saw us and saw what we had done and the evil that we had fallen into through Satan, through the serpent, he made up for us coats of skins. This was to tell us that someone had to die for sin. The fig leaves were merely the product of the ground, some earthly thing that we tried to cover ourselves with, and we're always trying to do with it, some earthly thing to cover our sin with. And God said, no, coats of skins must cover you, and this will indicate to you, Adam and Eve, that someone had to die for your sin, and your covering is through that sacrifice. And they told the children, Abel listened, Abel obeyed, Abel brought. How would Abel know to bring the firstlings of his flock? How would Abel know how to bring a sacrifice unless his mother and father had taught him? It doesn't say God told him. His father and his mother taught him, bring the sacrifice. And so God's great answer to Satan is, it is the blood that cleanses from sin. And Abel, in Hebrews it says, though dead, yet he speaketh. Why? Because he's alive. He's alive. And he speaks to our hearts that it is only a sacrifice for sin. Only by the shedding of blood, God says, can atonement be made for the soul of man. Without the shedding of blood, God says, there is no remission of sin, and I have given it upon the altar as an atonement for your soul. The blood cleansed from sin, and so by the sacrifice there was one man saved. Abel was saved. And then Seth is born. God gloriously brings forth Seth. And when Seth comes forth, Eve says, God hath appointed Seth to take the place of Abel so that the seed would yet come. Because Satan had tried to stop the seed that should come, the seed of the woman that would come, the seed of the woman who would finally crush his head. He knew it would have to be higher than himself, and he was the prime creation of God. Isn't it sad that Jehovah's Witnesses called Jesus the perfect creation of God? No! Lucifer was the perfect creation of God. Jesus is the divinely born Son of God. And Satan knew that it would have to be higher than a creation 
to ever crush his head. It would have to be someone far beyond just the creation of God. It would have to be God himself. And so God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself by the death of the cross. And so by one sacrifice, he saved one man. But God is going to do more than this, you see. And then we come and we find that as the years go by and the centuries pile on, that we come up to the days of the Exodus and we find Moses and the people of Israel. And God is doing him an amazing thing. He's going to expand his salvation but he's going to narrow the line that comes to Christ. He starts with Adam and Eve, and we see all the men coming forth. We get down to Noah, we find it narrows, and we find the three children of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and we find that the lineage must go down through Shem that is to run to Jesus Christ. Then we find the world populating, we find God comes down to Abraham and picks Abraham, one man, one nation. Then we find Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob becomes a father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then God narrows it down again and picks Judah. And then we find that he keeps narrowing it down, narrowing it down from all humanity until finally at the birth of Christ it is narrowed down to Mary and Joseph. And as you read the record in Matthew and Luke, you find that both of them are the descendants of David the king. And the Messiah must be the one who will come from David the king. For Christ, it tells us, is going to occupy the throne of David. And so God makes sure that by legal right and then by divine right, divinely born, Jesus shall occupy the throne of David and shall rule the world as King of kings, Lord of lords, high potentate over all the earth. But in the Exodus, God begins to expand his salvation. First it was, if I can say, a sacrifice, blood for one man. And now we come to the Exodus and all Israel is under persecution and the devil is working again. He knows that out of the tribe of Israel, for God has chosen Abraham and says, Abraham in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And Galatians says, when God said to Abraham, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, that seed was Christ. And so the war of Satan is against Israel. Why do you think the Jews have suffered so? Do you think it's been men only? It's been all the hellish designs of the great adversary of God to crush Israel. Why do you think Germany? Why do you think Spain? Why do you think England? Why do you think France? Why do you think Russia? Why do you think every single nation where they've gone have said we will slay them and annihilate them. Do you think that was out of just the heart of men? This was out of the great fiend, dark enemy of God, that he would crush Israel and wipe them out. It is still on the lips of men. 
Let us wipe out the Jew. Let us rid ourselves of the Jew. This is all a satanic desire that he might crush them. For if he could crush Israel and annihilate them, then God will be proven a liar. For God said to Abraham, Abraham, in thy seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And he said to Israel, Israel, though I bring an end of every nation upon the face of the earth, I'll never bring an end of thee. And so if Satan can crush Israel, he's crushed everything. Isn't it great to see the Jew? I think of Napoleon, how when he looked upon a Jewish general, and someone said, he said, oh, Napoleon said, oh, I wish I knew if there were a God. And one of his men beside him, one of his officers said to him, pointed to a Jewish general, and pointed to him and said, but for God that man would not live. He is a Jew. We can look down through history, but in the Exodus, we see an amazing thing happening. In Exodus 12, 3, a great and wondrous thing happens. Here is Pharaoh. He's going to kill them all. He's put them under deep and heavy bondage, and he's going to crush them and crush them and crush them until there's none left. And so Moses goes before them and asks to be released, and he refuses. He will not release them. He will not release them. He will not release them. And finally, Moses says, listen, unless you release us, God is going to take the firstborn of every family out of the land, and they'll be weeping all through this land unless you let us go. Pharaoh says, no, I'll not let you go. God says, Pharaoh, I'm going to make my name known throughout all the earth because of you. All he's saying is you're satanically controlled. You are under the very hand of Satan. You're trying to kill my people and you're trying to stop the seed from coming. You can't do it. And so God says to Moses, this is the way it's to be done. He says, I want everyone to gather into their little houses. He says, I want there to be a sacrifice of the lamb. You're to take the blood of the lamb and you're to put it on the side doorpost and the lintel above the door. And then when I come over, the angel of death sweeps through the land of Egypt. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Passover. Ah, there it is. And so God, who saved Abel, one man, now says, Father, and you know that's what the name Cohen means, the name Cohen, which is probably the most common name in the telephone directory, means priest. That's what it means. The father was the priest in the house. The father made the sacrifice. And so the father made the sacrifice for the family. And in Exodus 12, 3, it says, take a lamb for a house, and bring them all in the house and put the blood there. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so God expands it now. God saved one man able through the blood. Now he says, now I want you to get into your little family unit and I'll save a whole family in a house. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
And so the angel of death sweeps through Egypt, and the firstborn of all the Egyptian household are slain. And if there was a Jewish household that did not put the blood there, they were slain too, the firstborn, because it was by faith they believed God. That's all faith is. Faith is believing in what God says. Faith is believing that God will do what he says he will do. If God says he'll save a man who is redeemed in the blood, he'll save him. If we believe it, that's faith. And the Israelite home that believed it, they were redeemed in the blood of the Lamb. In Exodus 12, 3, he says, the Lamb for a house. And so his great salvation is expanding from a man to a house. And so Israel escapes. Pharaoh says, get out of the country, and then he tries to get them and bring them down. He chases them in through the Red Sea, and they pass through the Red Sea, and when all the Egyptian armies go into the Red Sea, the Red Sea, which typifies death to the world, flows in upon them, and it says, and all the chariots were along the shoreline and the dead bodies of Egypt. And they that were going to slay under satanic control find Israel now with the shedding of the blood in the Passover to protect them. And the next one is the nation. Ah, that's after the golden calf. After the golden calf and their licentious worship and their terrible, terrible worship of a golden calf. When Moses goes up to the mount to speak to God and then... Aaron, the high priest, imagine the high priest of God makes the golden calf for the people to worship. And when Moses comes down, they're dancing and engaging in lascivious immoralities and sexual impurities. And Moses comes down and takes the stone of the law and breaks them. And God looks down from heaven and he says, I ought to wipe out all Israel. That's what he said. I ought to wipe them out. And Moses says, God, Jehovah, how can you do this? This is the people. You drew them out of the land of Egypt. Now, would you slay them? Caught in the wilderness. And then it says, And the Lord looked upon Moses and said, Moses, I'll make of you a great people if you want me to. He says, No, thou hast promised that there will be blessing. Blessing out of Abraham's seed. And we are Abraham. And so a whole nation, the priesthood, Aaronic priesthood is brought into being and the great covenant, the ark of God is set forth. And in the ark, they make the ark of the covenant. Now it's going to be for a nation. First it was for a man, a sacrifice was sufficient. Then it was for a little family unit that the blood would cleanse, the blood would protect, the blood would keep. Listen, I trust that the blood of Christ is over your little families. Can I say that with all my heart this morning? I trust the blood of Christ. You don't have to put the blood of Jesus on the lintel in the doorpost at your home, you see. All you've got to do is know that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses you from all sin, you see. Is the blood over your home, is it? Do, do, do I speak to your heart this morning when I say that? Because that's how God, you see, spoke. He spoke to a man first, then to, an, to a household. And he said, now the blood will protect the children. Isn't that glorious? Aren't you glad? I'm so glad. I'm so glad my children are under the blood of Jesus. Praise the Lord. I hope your little babies, those of you who are little babies, all under the blood of Jesus. They belong to God, you see. 
but that mothers and daddies are under the blood of Jesus. We must exalt the blood of Christ. Paul, that's how are we going to understand what Paul says unless we understand this? I would know nothing among you, brethren, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because Paul is saying, unless you know this, you don't know anything. He says, I may be the most brilliant lawyer, and he was. All you got to do is read Romans. It's read in all the law schools. All you got to do is read Romans and know that Paul was a brilliant lawyer, educated under Gamaliel, University of Tarsus, a brilliant man. And he says, I would know nothing among you, brethren, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And so the high priest of old, beloved, made, and they took, and Israel made the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, they had those three things. Here was the law of Moses in the Ark of the Covenant. Here on the left was the pot of manna, and on the right was Aaron's rod that budded. And there above it was the mercy seat. And upon the mercy seat where the two cherubim looked down, remember, Satan was the cherub that covereth. And when God made the mercy seat, he made two cherubim of gold. What an affront to Satan. And he said, these two, these two cherubim made of gold will look upon my blood. And that blood will cover man's sin. That blood is above the law. The law is in the ark, but above it is the mercy seat. And the blood I will see, but I will not see the broken law which man breaks. And the pot of manna will be there. And the pot of manna will speak of the bread of God which is coming. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If any man eat of me, he shall never hunger and never thirst. If any man eat of me, he shall have life eternal. He says, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, and they are dead. If any man eat of the bread I shall give him, he shall live forever. And so the pot of manna is in the Ark of the Covenant. It's to tell them there was a bread coming, which they would eat thereof, even Christ. And this has nothing to do with the communion table. This is that which is actually taking Christ into us so that he becomes the indwelling presence in our bodies which have become the temples of the living God. And then the rod that budded. It was dead, you see. If you eat the bread of life, you have life. The rod was dead. It was a dead piece of wood. But with the power of God, life came out of death. And so if we eat Christ, we have life out of death, you see. The broken law is there, but the blood is above it. And so God arranges so that all Israel is having a high priest, Aaron, and once a year he will go for all the people of a whole nation. And now the sacrifice is once a year for the nation Israel. And it says, and there will be a remembrance made of sins once a year for Israel. Oh, I've told that so many times, I can't tell it again, but it's a glorious picture. 
when, you know, the high priest of old, when he arranged, when he was preparing for that great day of atonement, and when he came into the Holy of Holies, and he prepared and put on the simple vestments, he took off the vestments with the ringing bells around them, all the pomegranates and the bells around his robes, he laid them aside, and he put on the simplicity, the, the plainness to go in before God. He didn't bring any glory with him. He laid his glory aside, even like the Son of God, and then he came and he went in and he went into the Holy of Holies and he presented the blood sacrifice and then when he walked out of the Holy of Holies he put on again the glorious raiment and the bells and the minute he took the first step all Israel gathered out there in the outer courts all around one great shout would go up when the first ones in the front row heard the tinkling of the bells, they would know that God had accepted the blood sacrifice for all Israel. And so all Israel had the Day of Atonement. And so there was a sacrifice for a man. Satan is always answered by the blood, you see. Abel, there was a sacrifice for a family in the Exodus. Satan is defeated. He's going to crush all Israel. There was a sacrifice when they fell into deep sin and idolatry with a golden calf. God still kept his hand upon them. Some of you wonder how God's going to save you and keep you. Well, let me tell you, if he didn't keep Israel, he couldn't keep you. But he kept Israel despite their deep sin. And then the great day of atonement for all Israel, the lamb sacrificed for a nation. But then the great plan of God is expanding. And then Jesus comes. And John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, points his finger at Jesus. Listen. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Ah. It expands from a man to a family to a nation to a world. And Satan tried his best with Jesus all down through his life to slay him. And continually Jesus said, Mine hour is not yet come. And when he came to the cross, he said, Unto this hour, was I born? And then in Acts, Peter looks at Israel and he says, Him whom you by wicked hands have taken and have slain, God has raised from the dead and made him Savior because he could not be holden of death. A man, a family, a nation, a world. And always the answer is the blood. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. The great defense against Satan's attacks upon you is the fact that you have been cleansed from sin and you are a new creature in Christ, and you have one dwelling in your breast, 
who will not let you be afraid of satanic power of the devil himself. For while he is powerful and we are not to belittle him, we are not to exalt his power if we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our breast. For Jesus says, greater is he that dwells in you, my child, than he that is in the world. Remember that. He is the God of this world, he says. He is the prince of this world. Remember that. But I have a greater one dwelling in you now. That act, simple act of faith in claiming my blood as a cleansing power from sin has allowed me to come into a very poor vessel. It's not what I want. It's still corruptible. Your flesh still is sinful. But by my grace and by your faith in the blood to cleanse you from sin, I look at you and I see Christ in you and I come and I dwell in you by faith. And your righteousness is Christ's and none else. For I have made him to be sin for you who knew no sin that you might be made the righteousness of God in him. Praise God. Is your family under the blood? Do you know Jesus this morning as your Savior? Have you taken him? Have you come to grips with God? Let me tell you, this divine plan of God is far beyond the genius of man. The genius of man would have had a different plan entirely. The genius of man would have done this. The genius of man would have made a heaven for those who have scintillating conversation. They'd have been a heaven for the poor and the illiterate, a heaven for this group and that group. But each man in his own mind would make his own heaven so that he'd have the kind of people he likes with him. That happens in neighborhoods. That happens even in families. You don't care for someone in the family, so somehow you either move far enough away or you just don't have them for company. But God is not that way. His heaven is for all of us. Praise God, his heaven is for all of us. And I know I hear sometimes people crying out and saying, I want my pie now. Don't tell me about pie in the sky. Well, I want to tell you something. With all of the stress that we might make to help people in this world, to help them in Pakistan, to help them in India, to help them in China, to help them in Russia, there are two-thirds of the earth that are living on a starvation diet. And if it were possible for you and for me to work from now till the very end, trying to feed the world, we never reach that point. But I want to tell you that one day in heaven, in heaven, There'll be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more hunger, no more pain, no more of any of these things. I cannot promise to this world that they're going to have everything because I know they won't. Jesus says in this world there'll be tribulation, there'll be wars and rumors of wars unto the very end. He says the poor you will always have with you is going to be this way, not because of me, but because of man. You don't understand man, Jesus says. He's a sinner. He's a grabber. 
He's not a giver. And what you want in your heart, you can only have in one way. And that's by faith in my blood that will cleanse you from sin and give you peace in your heart individually on this earth and the promise of a world to come, a heaven to come, in which there will be no more crying, nor sorrow. The 21st chapter of Revelation, the former things are passed away and all things are become, what? New. Ah, new. So I can't promise you any pie down here. But I want to tell you, one day in glory, there's going to be joy and contentment in the presence of the Savior and what you're losing down here. And it's a sad, sad world. I don't know as I look around me. I just say, Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly. And what a promise we have from him. He says, everything will be subject to me. And I will rule. And righteousness shall dwell with us. And the lion shall lie down with the child. And the lion and the ox shall feed together on straw. He said, there'll be not one single thing that will hurt in all my kingdom. Wouldn't that be great? Hmm? What a day, huh? Aren't you happy? Come on, be happy, be happy. Be radiant, you see. We've got something, haven't we? What a joy, what a joy in the Lord. All right, let us pray together. Father, we thank Thee for our precious Savior this morning. Lord, it may be that there's someone here would like to say, Pastor, pray for me. I really want Jesus in my heart. You spoke of, to a man. Well, it's for me this morning. To a family, to a nation, to a world, that the blood cleanses from sin, and Christ is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Messiah that should come, the Savior that should come. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, Christ the Lord, and he shall save his people from their sins. How about you this morning? Have you ever made that decision? If not, do you want to just put your hand up, say, Pastor, pray for me. Here's my hand, Pastor, just pray for me. Yes, I saw your hand. Lord bless you. Anyone else, just say, Pastor, pray for me. Here's my hand. I really want Christ in my heart. I'm very serious. I need him. Jesus said, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Just put it up and then take it down when I see it. Yes, I see your hand. Lord bless you. Anyone else, just put it up. Say, Pastor, pray for me. Anywhere, in the balcony or downstairs. Yes, I see your hand. Lord bless you. Anywhere else? This is the time to come to Christ. These are mothers and grandmothers, I see. Anywhere, quickly. Yes, Lord bless you. I see your hand. Praise God. Yes. Anyone else? Quickly, while God is speaking to you, it is the blood that cleanses from sin. Are you trusting? Are you trusting? Do you have that faith? Anywhere, one moment, and then I close. Last moment. Anyone? Don't, yes, I see your hand. Don't hesitate, just put it up high and say, Pastor, pray for me. Quickly. 
Father, we do thank thee for these that have raised their hands in simple faith in Christ as personal Savior. Bless them, we pray, and pour out thy Holy Spirit upon them in great abundance and fill them to overflowing with him who is the power of God to us through this precious gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.